versus the world productions getting our geek on 24 7 365 shut up baby i know it vtwproductions.com listen to casually hardcore sundays at 4 p.m eastern if it's geek it's fair game come and get your geek on www.vtwproductions.com good afternoon phoenix comic-con Oh, you guys are in for a treat, a big treat. You know, if I could tell the 12-year-old inside of me years ago that I would have the privilege to do what I'm about to do, he wouldn't believe it. Because like many of you, when I was young, I fell in love with this series and with one man in particular. More than anything, I'm grateful for the privilege to introduce someone, not only that I've respected for years, but now I can call a friend because we've had the privilege to interact. And he is a great man, as great as the role he has played that we love. So please, put your hands together. There are a lot of captains in the Star Trek universe, are there not? But I'm afraid I'm going to have to say, and I hope you'll all agree, there can be only one. The greatest starship captain of all time, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. William Shatner. In my opinion, I'll make it stick. Push till it gives. In every revolution, there's one man with a vision. My order, fire photon torpedoes two, four, and six. And survive. All decks, condition red. Never lose you. I, I, thank you. Thank you. I, I hate these podiums. That's better. That's so much better. I hate, I hate that stuff where you can't reach out. Look at you all. Holy mackerel. There's so many people here. You gotta, are you standing or sitting? Sit down. Oh, there aren't so many people. Look at that. Uh, I am so glad to be here in Phoenix, I can't tell you what a joy it is for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a beautiful city, and I've been here um, many times before. Can you hear me? Raise the hands down there. Are you good? Okay, good. Okay. My God, that's like over the mountain there. Uh, I, I've been to Phoenix several times. Um, first time I was here, uh, was many years ago, I, I uh, was learning to fly uh, a Cessna airplane I'd learned in, in Florida. Uh, I, got, I soloed in Florida. And then uh, from Santa Monica in California, they require you to do a cross-country trip, which is usually like 100 miles triangle. So you go 300 miles and you... But I mistook it when they said cross-country. I thought it meant cross the country. So I remember landing in Phoenix on my way to Miami. Uh, and that was one of my first visits here. So coming over that mountain is really something. And, and uh, Phoenix is a, a great city, and I'm very happy to be here. I came on Southwest Airlines this time. And I, I don't know whether, I, I, I'm sure all of you, uh, because Southwest is such a, a predominant airline, 
that you all fly a Southwest airline at one time or another in your life. So I'm coming from uh, Burbank to Phoenix on Southwest Airlines. Southwest in its arid uh, part of the United States, it never rains. The plane takes off and we get a lecture on how to put on the vest in case of a water landing. And I'm looking at the, at the, at the lady doing the lecture, and I'm wondering, what body of water are we going to pass over that requires me to inflate the vest and pull the thing and blow a whistle, and the only body of water that I can think of that we're flying over is in my bladder? Okay, so that was the first joke I thought. Then I thought I'd try this one. The only body of water that we could fly over was in the toilet of the airplane. No, see, the bladder got a better, better laugh. Okay, so I, I've now tried out that piece of material, and I will use that from here on using the bladder joke. Okay, so as a start, because what I want to do is find out what you want to hear from me, but just to sort of warm you up. Let me tell you, I, I was in Germany last week, um, in Dusseldorf, Germany. And uh, I know some of you have taken pictures uh, this morning, and I, I believe I'd I, I take some more this afternoon, and, and I, I signed them. So in, in Germany, we were doing the same thing, pictures. And... I said to the photographer, as I said to the photographer here today, don't count one, two, three. Just say, ready, click, go. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, ready, click, He says, yeah, 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 yeah. So the first person came in, and this German photographer said, ready, go, click. No, 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 no. Ready, click, go. Ready, yeah, 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 yeah. Ready, go, click. <laughs> Nothing I could do about the German photographer. From Dusseldorf, I went to and fulfilled um, a longtime dream. I went to uh, Vienna. Austria. Now, horses are part of my life. Uh, uh, in in the, I wonder what you're applauding. <laughs> Whether it's my love of horses, horses, uh, the fact that horses exist. That they, maybe maybe the black rhino would have been better to get a hold of. Uh, so horses have a mystique for me that, uh, for a lot of people, uh, it's just a horse. But to me and, and my wife, a horse is more than just a horse. A horse, for example, in the charity I run, is hippotherapy. It, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful therapeutic thing to do for someone young or, and now our returning veterans are, are finding that the same ills that afflict, afflict 
children and that they're afflicted with, they get the same therapeutic effects. So riding a horse uh, for many people is beyond just sitting on a horse. For me, since I've been riding a long time and in several disciplines, I've gone beyond the technique of sitting and getting the, the shoulder and the hip and the, and the heel and the line. And I've gone into, I've progressed in the art of being an equestrian to being at one with the horse and to, be, to feel the unity of riding so that riding for me now is in many instances a spiritual experience. I get to talk to the horse. I say to the horse, let's go over here. And he says, no, I don't want to. Come on. No, come on. And we go wherever he wants to go, actually. But it becomes something beyond just riding a horse. It's communicating with another animal. And the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, highest form of it is the Spanish riding school, and I was in Vienna uh, after Germany at, uh, in Austria at the Spanish riding school talking to the head of the school and who was informing me about what the riders in the legendary hall there were doing. I had a, an enormous uh, lifetime dream experience a couple of days ago, and then um, I just got back last night to Los Angeles and came here today to be with you. And I feel so alive, as long as that trip was, being in front of all of you, and there's so many of you, it's so beautiful to see that, that uh, the Comic-Con is drawing this number of people. It's a, it's a wonderful experience for me. I'm having a wonderful time just uh, talking. <laughs> all right. So, let me find out what it is you uh, want me to talk about. So, let me, let me take a first question. How are we organizing that, guys? Hold on a second. There's a microphone there, and how are we working this? Is there a, uh, uh, do, uh, do, the, uh, do the organizers of the Comic-Con with 5,000 people in the audience uh, have any organization about how the questions are? <laughs> Okay, right there. I see. Okay. Uh, let me go over here. Wouldn't it be wonderful, a wonderful moment when I fall off the stage? Uh, I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing because I'm going to die if I, if I... But you were here. Yeah. All right, honey, what's your first question? Now, put your mouth right up to the mic. Breathe in all those germs. And, and speak loudly so we all can hear. Now, we can't hear Hi. Hey, Danny Crane. <laughs> right. That's a good opening. Um, my, my question, right into the microphone. My question was for you. It was about Boston Legal. Uh, Boston Legal, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you filmed a lot of them. What? So, you filmed a lot of them. I filmed a lot of them, yes. yes. So 70, what? 79, I think. So <laughs> what was that Star Trek? I forgot. What was your favorite? What? Of, what was your favorite out of all, all of them? What was my favorite of all those episodes? The Mad Cow. Was it the Mad okay. Cow? All right. What was my favorite episode? You know, that's actually one of the most common questions is what's my favorite episode of Star Trek? 
I haven't had what was my favorite episode of uh, Boston Legal. Of Boston Legal, but I, I, the one that, that yes, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the it's true. You get to a certain age, you say, "I'll answer that." What was the question? And um, Boston Legal. The. <laughs> I meant that as a joke, but Don't obviously it wasn't me. funny to. Sorry, I'm, I'm, <laughs> the, I'm gonna be over here. Uh, the, the, the Boston legal team was. Uh, we went for five years, which is two years longer than Star Trek, and uh, and we had a wonderful cast and a great writer, uh, David E. Kelly. So he wrote many memorable scripts that had to do with many uh, different subjects that were are. Uh, uh, things that we should all be thinking about in our country. But, but the thing that I remember most of all was uh, the evening we were working late and suddenly I threw myself across Candace Bergen's desk <laughs> screaming, ah! And she said, Bill, are you going to play the scene that way? And I said, no, I'm in pain! And René Aubergenois, I'd love to say his name, said, you're passing a kidney stone. And it's true. I passed the biggest kidney stone known to man. Bigger than my wife's engagement ring. With the same clarity and purity, I may add it. That's a joke from my one-man show. I talk about this. It's a little old material, but since you haven't seen the one-man show, it, it seems fresh to you. <laughs> and, 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 and indeed it was. And, and then the next day, I got a phone call from uh, a gambling uh, uh, website who are not allowed to advertise. So they do promotional things, like they bought a Swiss cheese sandwich with the face of Christ on it. <laughs> and they paid $15,000 for it. And they offered me $25,000 for my kidney stone. <laughs> and I said, in true uh, uh, Priceline tradition, <laughs> I want $100,000. <laughs> we settled on seventy-five. dollars the cast contributed 25 With the $100,000, we gave it to Habitat for Humanity. And somewhere in, in Louisiana, a family is living in that house that my kidney stone bought. So if you want to know my favorite episode, that's probably it. And what's your question? I really enjoyed your show, Raw Nerve. Raw Nerve? Yeah. Yes. That, that's an album. It wasn't a show, but thanks. Oh, I thought you had the television show where you interviewed the different celebrities. Was that called oh, Raw Nerve? Oh, wait a minute. You're right. It wasn't okay. the album. <laughs> 5,000 people will, will just obliterate your memory here. Okay. Raw Nerve was the interview show. Yes, thank yes. you. Yes, and, and Has Been was the record. They, see, it's, they both have two words. And you can make a mistake with two words, that's easy. If it had three words, I wouldn't have made a mistake. What's your question? 
you did an I interview. I got around that rather well, don't you then? You did an interview with Tim Allen, and it was, I, I loved all of Tim Allen, yes. Yeah. Tim Allen, and as we all know, he played basically what was supposed to be a, a character like yourself. In I Galaxy know, Park. he played a character like me. I know, and you didn't bring that up at all in I Raw Nerve. You didn't bring that up at all in Raw no, Nerve. No, I didn't bring that up because I was so overwhelmed. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I was don't wondering know if why. you talked. I was wondering if you talked with him at all about playing basically a character that was like yourself. If there was, any, if you guys talked about that at all, because that would have been a really interesting topic Wait a minute. for the. If fans. I had asked him about playing somebody like me, that would have been interesting. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. So what I asked him wasn't interesting. No, it was. No. It would have been interesting I as well. Up to now, in your addition to. Is not going very well. No, and. and no, in addition to all the interesting questions you asked, that would have been another interesting question. So that would have been two interesting questions. No, there were many. Like, what's your name, and how do you like playing me? I guess that's a... Uh, so, uh, ask me something. I, I was wondering if you spoke with him about his character in Galaxy Quest, and if, there, if, if, he, if he got any of the inspiration So from far, you. your question's not going Sorry. well. Sorry. Slow down and ask me a question. Did you speak with Tim Allen about any, if he got any inspiration from you and in his role in Galaxy Quest? Okay. Did I talk to Tim Allen about him playing me and how wonderful a moment it must have been? <laughs> I, I didn't bring the subject up because actually I totally forgot. Not only that, he, he had a little tummy when he played me. He had a little pooch in his stomach. And I thought that was kind of mocking. <laughs> Tim Allen is, a, he's become a buddy, uh, is a wonderful, vulnerable, loving man. And uh, he's had these hit series on. It's no accident that the American audience loves him because he's a very lovable guy. I got into depth with him as I did with a lot of people on Raw Nerve. You know, Raw Nerve for me was one of the most interesting things I've done in that I love to talk to people. I love to discover people. And in the discovery process, there's drama. So what we would do on Raw Nerve is we'd sit across, and I designed a chair, uh, a kind of love seat, which brought us within about 18 inches of each other. There is uh, the bubble around us all of privacy varies from culture to culture. In the Middle East, for example, they lean in and talk to you in your ear. I mean, they're spitting in your ear. You know, and, 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 and in Asia, some of the cultures are very, because they're so densely packed, they're very close to each other. Here, in America, it's about 18 inches. Right. So this, these chairs were about 20 inches apart, far enough so I wasn't intimidating them, in, in invading their space, but close enough for me to see their eyes and their pupils and the non-verbal language that you have to pay attention to when you're talking to people, because people mostly talk in a nonverbal way. All animals do, and I'm an animal person. My dogs, my horses, uh, and even my wife. No, she's not here. I just... 
in a nonverbal way, we communicate so much. And, and, if, and when you're talking to somebody, when, and I can't see you because of the light, uh, so much is revealed by the manner in which you're saying something, which is what actors should be doing. In saying hello, hello isn't just hello from anybody. Don't you, when you talk to somebody on the phone, listen to the nuance. How are they saying hello? Or when you see them for the first time and they say hello, you're reading, even subconsciously, but many times consciously, reading what the hello really means. Well, that's what people do, especially if you can get them past the self-consciousness of talking to, to you. Once they're past the idea, uh, I wonder what he's after and why is he talking to me, in these interviews, I would be able to get past it because we were filming uh, Raw Nerve, so I knew I could edit out, well, do you like baseball, and, and, and get them talking, and then get them talking about some element about themselves. I never worked from notes. I never worked from, from any pre-conceived uh, questions. Always what it was I was getting from them at that moment. For example, a lovely story that those of you who may not have seen the interview I did with Leonard Nimoy. I interviewed Leonard. Now, I've known Leonard a good part of my life since the beginning of Star Trek. We've had a wonderful, wonderful relationship. We're like brothers. And yet, when I interviewed him, he told me a story I had never heard before and that he had never spoken of before. Somehow we got on the subject of when he returned home after being a successful actor and what it was like when he went home. And he said his grandfather, who lived with Leonard's father, Leonard's grandfather worked in leather, leather purses, leather shoes, and every time Leonard went to the house, he would sit with his grandfather, talking to his grandfather, and his grandfather would reach in and feel his shoes to see how Leonard was doing, whether the leather was worn on the sole or on the back. It meant Leonard wasn't doing too well. But if he was wearing new shoes, his grandfather was very happy for him. What a, an insight into an elderly man perceiving his grandson through the only means he knew how. It was such a revealing, loving story, and Leonard had never told it to anybody, even to himself uh, in a long time, and certainly never to me. And it was, it's that kind of thing that Raw Nerve brought to me. I, I also did a show that wasn't very uh, well viewed uh, for one reason or another. It was on the bi uh, Biography Channel. It was called Aftermath, in which I sought to talk to people about events that were in the news five years ago, long since past our consciousness, but what was the aftermath to uh, the lady who married the, uh, her, her student of 13, uh, Mary uh, uh, Turno, Mary something Turno. Mary what? Mary Kay Letourneau. Mary Kay Letourneau. So I interviewed her and her 
now 24-year-old husband. She had gone to jail for love. Her idea of romantic love required her to go to jail because of what she believed. It was totally opposite to what we've heard on the news, and it was the aftermath of that. So I've had some wonderful experiences on the air talking to people like that, and if I didn't get to Tim Allen's How Did He Feel Playing Me, <laughs> we got to some other interesting dark stuff about Tim that, uh, that he was kind enough to reveal to me. It was a great Thank show. You. Thank you so much. Next question. See, that, this is what I love, the, the, the questions, and then I riff on the questions, and then I can hear you listening, and it's like what we're talking. It's like we're having a conversation. This is really good. Go ahead. Uh, I was wondering Not if Louder. Got to be louder because there's people back there that they, they can't hear us. Sorry. Um, can you tell no, us about it's not any... loud enough. <laughs> right into the mic. Right, right in there. Can you tell us about <laughs> any uh, pranks that you have been played on yourself with the cast members of any movie or TV show, Star Trek? What? <laughs> any pranks? Have you been involved in any okay, pranks? Hold on a second. Start the question again. <laughs> Have you been involved in any pranks on the set? Pranks? Yes. On the set when I was playing Star Trek? Anywhere. Anywhere. Mm -hmm. I play pranks all the time. <laughs> In fact, uh -oh. I'm not really here. <laughs> there, there, there's a story. I, I don't know how old, you know, uh, some of you uh, probably have never seen me before. <laughs> and what a surprise, isn't it? Um, But there's a, a wonderful story I love to tell, and I'm going to tell it again, even though you may have heard it. Uh, Leonard Nimoy and his, and his bicycle. Yeah? Okay. That's good. Two people, and so the rest of you is that. That means 4,998 people have not heard the story. Okay. So when we were shooting Star Trek, uh, doing, the, doing the scenes and, and, and doing... Uh, interacting with the other uh, members of the cast was very important. <clears throat> very important that an actor interact and be part of an acting company. That's, that, that's why you're there. The next most important thing is lunch. <laughs> okay? So, our, st our, our stage at Paramount Studios was way over there. The commissary was way over there. You had a half an hour for lunch. It took 10 minutes to get from the studio to the commissary. 10 minutes back, that's 20 minutes. You had 10 minutes to eat lunch, which includes ordering lunch. That's not enough time. <laughs> as important as it was to interact with the actors, not to get lunch, could interfere with that interaction. <laughs> so, I tuned myself to the first assistant director whose job it was to look at his watch and say, lunch. The moment I heard, 
I was out the door. Now, you may not believe it because I'm the age I am, but I could run so fast. I was really a fat, I was in, I was in track and field. I mean, I'd, I'd walk along a track and try and get the field for it. As a, <laughs> my bladder was the only body of water that we were gonna fly. <laughs> so I was out the door on le. Before he could say ch, I was out the door. I was first in line at the commissary. I got my lunch in 10 minutes, I was back. Leonard, he's tall, he's gain, ungainly, you know. He'd be last. So one day, the first assistant yells, and I'm out the door. Leonard is on a bike. <laughs> and he beats me to the commissary. He's on a bike. <laughs> so the next day, I brought a chain and lock. <laughs> All right. And when I say a chain, I mean a chain. And you know those locks? They used to shoot the lock, and everything would explode around the lock, but the lock would stay locked. That's the kind of lock I brought. And I chained the bike to the fire hydrant. And I locked it. And I'm out the door. Leonard gets on his bike. He can't go. He said, where's the key? I'm gone. I'm eating lunch. So the next day, he brought bolt cutters. And he chopped the chain. And he beat me to lunch. So the next day... Because, you know, in a large studio, you get a lot of people, you don't know who they are. They could steal things. <laughs> and I didn't want his bike stolen. <laughs> so for safekeeping, I put it in my dressing room. <laughs> and when they called, Le, and I was out the door, and Leonard went to get his bike, he said, where's my bike? I said, it's in my dressing room. So he ran to my dressing room. Oh! I forgot to tell him. My Dobermans are in the... Uh... That's great. So he never forgave me for that. And he got, you know, he got bitten up a bit, but... It was, they, were, they were love bites. I mean, his wife Susan does the same thing. He doesn't complain about that. Yes, that's the kind of pranks uh, I would play. Okay. All right. What's your question, man in the red shirt? You're going to be shot momentarily. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, okay, it's a question you probably heard before, but how much of you... Well, then the answer will be familiar, <laughs> too. How much of you is in Captain Kirk? How much of me is in Captain Kirk? Yes. Well... I'm, my, my, I'm racing whether I should give you an honest answer <laughs> or whether I should give you an answer that is facetious. Any answer that we haven't heard before. That might be an honest answer. <laughs> <Okay. there>. Great. <laughs> uh, a 
actors <laughs> are people who <laughs> to explain an actor is very difficult because there's different kinds of let me explain from my point of view. I surprise am basically a shy person. Okay? I come, my basic personality is to be reticent, not to want to be in front of a crowd and crowds I, I I'd rather have lunch or dinner with a couple of people and and uh not that speaking in front of people uh, at this point is intimidating, but if you were to ask me, basically, am I outgoing or in, uh, withdrawn, I would say withdrawn. But it's my job and something I've learned over the many years to uh, reach out and portray something. Now, along with horseback riding, I've only recently discovered how to act. <laughs> I've been acting since I was six years old. I've been a performer since I was six years old. And I've been riding horses for many, many years. But it's amazing how as you get older and physically less capable, your ability to distill the knowledge grows so that you know what to do. You just can't do it quite as well in any of the many various uh, human activities. <laughs> A gentleman who is uh, looking at me with knowledge is laughing, and I think it's snidely. <laughs> it's, it, to me, it's amazing that as I've gotten older, I've suddenly said to myself, Oh, that's how you do it. No matter what it is. Oh, that's, that's what it is. Or, oh, that's what the meaning of life is. Or any, any question, slowly it dawns on you that this is what life is all about or this is how you do that. Riding a horse. I come back to that because there's something that permeates my entire life the lessons that you learned from riding a horse, like humility. Like if you approach a horse with arrogance, you're going to be humiliated momentarily. <laughs> so learning to do something uh, complicated, like acting, takes time. And like last year, I thought, oh, that's what I do. Or that's how to do it. Or that's how to read that line. Or that's how to give a multiple meaning, complex, like we were talking about hello. You say, somebody says hello to you, you're reading, are they happy, are they sad, are they angry? Are they, you know, there are multiple levels to one word that we indulge in, all, uh, uh, in every aspect of our life that actors should be aware of, that their character is multi-leveled. And to say hello in fiction is as complex as it is in life. But I've only started to discover that. But I can only come to that through myself. I can't know what you know. I can only know what I know. So this is a long-winded way of saying <laughs> that every actor 
brings only themselves to the thing they're playing, the caveat there is the older you get or the more genius you have when you're young is you understand that there's a complexity that can be delved into that may not be entirely you on the surface, but is indeed you inside. Wonderful. Okay? Thank you very much. Wonderful. I wonder what I meant by all that. I... <laughs> yes. Where are I'm, I'm here to correct you on your favorite show of uh, Boston Illegal. I mean, yeah, Boston Illegal. Yes. It was The Defender. And my question is related back to the flashback in 1957 when you were a young lawyer. You were uh, working with Ralph Bellamy. Yes. What kind of inspiration or advice did he give you as a young actor? Would I give to a young actor? No, that Ralph Bellamy gave you. Gave to me as a young actor. Yes. And I hope that doesn't make you feel old either. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not your question that makes me feel old. <laughs> it's my spine. <laughs> uh, um, you know, there was an interesting segment, episode of Boston Legal, in which the producers who had followed my career over the years remembered a specific live television event. If any of you remember the series called The Defenders? No, huh? Okay. Well, that series, The Defenders, was based on a show that I did years ago with uh, uh, a great actor called E.G. Marshall. E.G. Marshall and I played in a Studio One, I think, mm -hmm. called The Defenders, in which a father and son defended Steve McQueen, by the way, in his first job. And it was, it, it, it got really good attention and critics and stuff like that. It was a wonderful show, and, 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 uh, and E.G. Marshall. Where did E.G. Marshall fit in with Ralph Bellamy? I don't, I don't know. Ralph Bellamy was... The okay, wait a minute. E.G. Marshall played... That's it. E.G. Marshall played the series. Ralph Bellamy played with me. Okay. So, Ralph Bellamy and I... Uh, for, forgive me, but it's 60 years ago, and I'm remembering it. <laughs> which in itself I, gets applause. I, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> So 60 years ago, is there anybody here who's 60? No. That's how long ago this was. Ralph Bellamy, who had been an actor in the silent movies. He was a leading man. He was gorgeous. He had long, wavy hair, and he was handsome. And, and it was before, before talkies, but he had been a stage actor. Then in the 30s, when, when voice, when, when sound came in, he began to talk and like... Some actors, you know that story about the, the great uh, movie idol of the silence. Uh, uh, Lon Chaney? What was his name? Lon Chaney? No, not Lon Chaney. <laughs> Valentino. Valentino was <clears throat> the great lover in the silent movies. He rode off with some beautiful woman on a Arab horse holding her. He was the Arab sheik. He was the sheik of Araby. Valentino. 
He was a great star in silence. And then sound came in. And they said to Valentino, you will be a great star in, 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 in movies with the sound. So they made a movie with him. And this is what he did. Let's go up there. They said, no, Mr. Valentino, lower your voice. Okay. Let's go into the blue. No, Mr. Valentino, you sound like a three-year-old child. I know, but that's my voice. He went from being the biggest star in movies, in silence, to not having a job in a few months because sound came in. Ralph Bellamy had been a stage actor, and he had a wonderful mellifluous voice, and he, had, he, was, he was fantastic. So by the time I got to work with him, he was now a character actor with all that legend behind him, all that history that I was connected to in live television, which is also so well, so past most of your uh, consciousness, that, that uh, television came in with live cameras. It would be like this. It would be like us on the stage here at cameras, hot, hot lights shooting us with some drama. And any mistake you made, millions of people saw because, because it was live television. Well, shortly after that came filmed television, and Ralph Bellamy and I played in this wonderful show called The Defenders. And as I say, Steve McQueen's first appearance in front of the American public. Well, years go by. I've done that show. And now I'm in uh, Boston Legal. And the producers of Boston Legal remember that memorable show. So they took excerpts of that live television show and made it memories that this older, I hesitate to say old, <laughs> lawyer was remembering. And it was fantastic imagination. And only, I, I don't know, I can't think of any other actor who was in live television in those days and acting in television in these days and brought the two together. It was magical. It was a magical moment. It was one of my most, if you were asked my favorite episode, it, instead of the screaming kidney stone one, <laughs> that's my favorite episode. How smart of you to bring that up. Wow. I think it's like walking a tightrope here. <laughs> but I don't want to get behind that white table because it's, like an operating table, like somebody should come up and I should take out their kidneys or something. <laughs> Next question. If you could speak to yourself when you If were, I could speak to myself. When you were 30 years or younger. When I was 30 years or younger. What story, advice, and or joke would you tell yourself? What story would I tell myself? Yes. Or joke? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. God, I'm so glad you're asking me these Wonderful questions instead of, what's my favorite episode? Um, <laughs> all right, so I'm 30 years old. Where am I at 30? I'm 30, and I'm, I've come to Hollywood. I, I had been on live television. I, uh, I, I had graduated from McGill University uh, in, in Montreal. Uh, we're in Phoenix, so uh, 
Montreal is like the other end of the world, but uh, that's in Canada. <laughs> and Canada is the country north of the United States, <laughs> but south of Alaska, so it's in between. And I, I had been an actor since I was six years old, and I had done all the dramas and the radio shows and television shows and movies and musical theater at, at the university and all. And, and then I'd gone to Stratford, Ontario, and I trained as a Shakespearean actor, and I, and I did Shakespeare, and I, you know, I was doing well. I got some prizes and stuff like that. And, and then, um, then Stratford, Ontario brought down to New York, to, uh, to uh, Broadway, a play by Christopher Marlowe called Tamburlaine, and I had a really good part in this play, Tamburlaine, and we opened in, on Broadway, the dream. I mean, I used to, I was acting uh, in Canada until I was about that age, uh, about 28, 29. <coughs> and you dream of, I mean, everybody at a job says, I wonder what my next improvement is. Well, my job was acting, and I, the next higher up thing was to be successful in the United States. It never occurred to me. I never had thought it would be possible that I could get to Broadway and be part of the Broadway scene. Stratford, Ontario, Canada brings down this play and I'm noticed, I get notices and agents uh, are uh, uh, attracted to me and I get work on live television as I've uh, described. And now I'm 30 years old and I'm... I'm um, I'm asked to come to Hollywood to do film. And one of the first films, a uh, piece of film that I did, was the strange, strange show that nobody ever heard of. It's some twi 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 <laughs> Twilight Zone? <laughs> a show called Twilight Zone? <laughs> science fiction? Well, I, I don't do science. I'm a Shakespeare actor. What is that? <laughs> All right, I'll do Twilight Zone. And so they hand me this script in which it's like a one-man show, which, by the way, I'm doing. <laughs> 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 I opened in New York uh, a few months ago to great notices. I toured 15 cities in the United States this, is, this year. I've just given you a little advance here. And maybe I'll, I'll be coming to Phoenix on a one-man show. I don't know. But <laughs> so I'm on this show called Twilight Zone. And essentially, it's me looking at a Czechoslovakian acrobat in a furry little suit pretending to be a gremlin on a wing. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I just came off of Marlowe and... And, and Tamburlaine the Great, and I'm doing this idiot <laughs> looking out in the wing, seeing a gremlin. This is, this is the, my career is wrecked before it even begins, <laughs> I thought. Which, by the way, my children, who had no idea what I did at that point or, or later for the longest time, now we get on an airplane when we all fly as a family. <laughs> They say, Dad, 
do the look. <laughs> so I turn away, look out the window, and my wife says, ma'am, to, to, the, to the hostess, miss, would you come over here, please? And she comes over, she says, what's the matter? And I go, oh. <laughs> We do that every so often. And we're asked to leave the airplane then. <laughs> so I, was, I had no idea what was happening. I just knew that as I did this Twilight Zone, uh, it, 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 it wasn't going too well with a Czechoslovakian acrobat in a fursuit on a wing. But it turns out that for the last 50 years, Every time they have a Twilight Zone, a twilight zone uh, marathon. marathon, they play that show. Yep. So there's something universal. I mean, why would they take that show? And the other one I did were uh, ask questions of the machine. They play that all the time. And all I can think of is that there are universals, and it doesn't matter what the thing looks like. Our special effects... In, in Star Trek, looking back now with the, with the uh, computer-generated effects we have now and what J.J. Abrams can do in a movie uh, are ridiculous. I mean, we, we, we were ridiculous. Sometimes the, the set would shake when the door, you know, the doors would open and close and the set would shake a little. <laughs> and the director would say, well, would you mind bracing that flat? Just what, put another nail in it, for God's sakes. You know, the, that... But it didn't matter to, in, in many of those shows, and some they did, but many of those shows, it didn't matter what it looked like. It was what was happening on camera. That's why we're here, not because of the sets or the special effects. We were, we're here to celebrate our, our love of Star Trek because of the stories, because of the meaning, because of what, what involved. Let me, let me tell you something else. Let me tell you something else. I have become involved in making documentaries, and I did a documentary called The Captains. I don't know what any of these are. Okay, that's great. Those of you who haven't applauded, either you didn't like it or you haven't seen it. I urge you to see it. It's a very, it's, it's a terrific insight into the actors who played the captains. Now, I went from that one you see how this answer to the Twilight Zone, to, to what I would say to myself at 30, is amplifying? Isn't it magical? I went from the captains to directing another documentary, which is being edited as we speak. I'm going to see the second rough, rough cut on Tuesday. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll go back to Los Angeles tonight. Uh, I'll try and sleep tomorrow. And uh, Monday and Tuesday, I'm going to see the second rough cut of what will play on Epic's television, which played the captains, that they're calling Get a Life. Okay? In, in Canada, the show will be longer and will be called Fan Addicts. But Get a Life. From the sketch that I did years ago about Get a Life. Okay? Now, let me, let me, let me. Let me tell you the, the, the discovery, if you will. Like a great conversation, 
making a documentary is, a, is, is discovery. You're suddenly talking to somebody and they say something and you say, oh, I didn't know that. And then you go from there on to something else because you're being led like, like a reporter looking for a story in an event. He doesn't know what the story is. He just knows that the event took place and he's discovering the story. That's what shooting a documentary is like. I really, I mean, I knew that, but I didn't really insightfully know that until I started doing it. When I was doing The Captains, I kept thinking, what am I doing? And then about the third or fourth day, what was happening in front of the camera began to suggest where I was going. Well, I've just finished this Get a Life which tries to explain what the heck are 5,000 people doing in this auditorium? Why are we here? This man says me, and you say we love you. Okay. I wrote a book called Get a Life, all right? And in that, I did my due diligence, and as I started writing it, I thought, well, they're here to see me. Well, it turns out that you weren't. <laughs> Much to my chagrin, you were here to see each other, to renew old friendships, and to find out what had happened to each other, and to see each other, to celebrate your mutual love of, of a subject. And I thought, okay, that's the discovery of my book. Then I began to do this, this documentary about why are people coming to conventions? And this discovery blows my mind. It turns out that we're all here because of mythology. We lack a mythology in today's culture. We don't know what to believe. We don't know how to explain our lives. We don't know what the meaning are. Well, you talk about religion, and religion is to some people, many people, a mythology that gives you explanation. But to a number of other people, what the Greeks tried to do to explain their life. The Greeks would find a huge bone that we now know was a dinosaur bone. And they had no explanation for it. Hey, Xerxes, what the hell is this? <laughs> and Xerxes would say, my God, it must be a giant. So they made up a whole story of giants behind the the mountains and the giants and the gods would play. And they had whole stories explaining their culture. We're here, even though we don't, a lot of you don't know it, to celebrate this mythology of Star Trek. And you're all participating in the ritual of the mythology. The, the cast, perhaps the captains, are the heroes of that mythology. And the wearing of the uniforms and the getting the, 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 the signature and, 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 and putting on the, the omelet that looked like a Klingon. And the, and <laughs> all that is participating in the ritual because it's what we love. It's our explanation of our lives for that moment. And the people who don't know this are the poorer for it. So what to the outside world, looks like, who are these Trekkies, Trekkors, what do they want? They don't know the secret that I discovered that is in this film, that we're here as part of a cultural myth, and it all makes sense. And wait till you see this film, it will blow your mind.
next question, for God's sakes. Uh, I think you're on the other side. I think I'm Sorry. on the other I side. I give up my question, but go you on the other side. You'll be over on this side, I believe. <laughs> okay. Well, first, Mr. Shatner, yes. thank you so much for coming here to Phoenix. It's wonderful oh, to get this you, opportunity. Sir. Thank you. And I must apologize. I have a two-part question. And it you is have going, a two-part question? And it is going to require a bit of memory. A bit of memory. <laughs> now, the first part, well, and me. I'm sure 4,999 people in this room already know the answer. I just don't. Okay. I caught the last 15 minutes of a film that you starred in on cable many years ago. And you were playing a man on a playground late at night. And you began interacting with imaginary playmates and regressed to about a six or seven year old boy. Yeah, I remember that. I do not know what that film is called. I have not been able to find out. The other part of the question though, what I remember most striking from that was how your body language changed as you ran and played with your imaginary friends, it was absolutely stunning. Well, thank I was you. wondering what you did. To, how did you prepare for that? Well, I used to be a 15-year-old kid, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I remember that, and I've forgotten what it is. <laughs> well, does, does well that isn't know? necessarily aged memory. It's just that I do a lot of things. And, like, I can't remember the last question. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm... Doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm Denny Crane, does it? I mean, um, I, I remember that scene, and it was shot in Canada, and I remember looking at it and thinking what to do. You know, um, uh, I, I love music, and I love the, the uh, musicality of words, and the rhythm of words, and, and although, and I'm gonna, I, I don't want you to tell anybody, <laughs> but I can't sing. <laughs> but what I love are the words. So I interpret the song and hope for the best. <laughs> there was a song in The Transformed Man, which was the first album I did, The Transform Man was a failure because it wasn't very good. <laughs> it was pretty good in, in segments. One of the good things in, in uh, The Transform Man was, you see, the concept of The Transform Man was to take literature like uh, to be or not to be, Shakespeare, uh, uh, Hamlet, should I live, should I die? And musically segue into a song that had the opposite philosophy. In this case, it was a very good year. In which a guy, Frank Sinatra sang it, uh, made it popular. But in which a man goes from one stage of his life to the other. He ages in the song. So I interpreted the song and became a young man full of life, and then older, and then older, and finally, in the last stages of his life, still finding the joy of life, not unlike me right now. That's how I interpreted the song. Now, were you to get the transformed man and play the song, I think you might find it interesting, because that's what I did vocally. In that show you're talking about, long, long lost 
both in my memory and in yours and not at all conscious here. <laughs> well, I don't mean that uh, as a fault. I mean that everything is lost in time. Nothing stays permanent. But in the moment, like right now, you and I have recreated a playground in which this character suddenly goes from being a middle-aged guy playing in a playground and gradually gets younger and younger. I think it was a, it was a science fiction story of, of, of a type, a lovely idea. The actor just feels, brings up, remembers, allows it to penetrate and permeate the body, and without thinking, like riding the horse, without thinking, but moving the horse through your mind, no thought, just feel. The actor feels the words, feels the feeling, and allows it to come out through whatever means it will come out. And that's the art of acting that I've only recently discovered. Thank you so much, Mr. Shatner. How are we doing for time, guys? All day. <laughs> Next question. Hi. You've been part of my life for 40 years, even though you don't know me. And I'd like to find out what's next in your future, what's on your bucket list. What's, what's on my bucket list? Yes. All right, let's see. Um, I'll give you my next week uh, calendar. <laughs> I go home, and tomorrow I'll visit with my grandkids, and I've got three girls, and they've all got children, and we'll all have family things, and we'll do family. I haven't seen them in several weeks, and I miss them. I miss missed my dogs. My dog, my older dog, uh, Starbuck, uh, is, <laughs> Not Tribble? Uh, well, his daughter is called Cappuccino, so that's... Uh, <laughs> Starbuck is 12 years old, and he's getting ready to die. Uh, it's an awe. It's, it is an awe. You know, um, I talk about death in, in, in my one-man show, and I talk about the death of Captain Kirk, and and w w what I tried to do there. But in Starbuck, a 12-year-old dog, whom I've had since he was eight weeks old, his daughter, Cappuccino, who is five, I birthed. I actually took her out of the womb oh. and got the fluid out of, her, out of her lungs. Dogs acquire the magic of the, I don't want to say owner, of, the, of their partner. I read just on the way here a book called Before Tuesday, in which Luis Montalban writes about his dog that helps, his uh, utility dog that helped him get through the dreadful nightmares of, that he had as a soldier. So he writes about his dog the way I feel about 
my dogs. They're part of my soul. And when Starbuck dies, as I put down dogs over the years, a part of me dies. Now, right now, Starbuck has a growth, a, a growth of matter on this parathyroid, which governs the amount of calcium in your blood. And he has a high count. He could calcify his, in, his inner organs, especially his, his, uh, his, bla uh, his uh, kidneys, could calcify if we don't take care of it. But he's 12 years old. What to do? What do you do? How do you take an older parent, an older loved one? What kind of measure do you do to keep them alive? I mean, their life is as important as your life. And the horrible decision we all have to make at some point in our lives is what do we do with the elderly person whose quality of life is descending, whose death is inevitable in the very near future? What do you do? Do you spend the money that the youth and the living need to keep the, the beloved older person alive? Do you say with all the autocracy of, of, of God, no more, let them die? So in a microcosm with my aged dog, I have to make a decision that all of us make at some point in our lives about our older loved ones. I told the vet, and I'm driving from Los Angeles to UC Davis in Sacramento, it's a seven-hour trip. I'll be taking that uh, next week to drive him up there for a procedure which should eliminate the growth and give him a little more time of a quality of life. That's the decision I've made. That's because I have the money to make that decision. But the horrible decision that we all have to make, the question that we all have to face, and no matter how much money you have, at some point you have to say, I've got to let go. As difficult as it is, as heart-wrenching as it is, at some point you've got to let go. And the additional level to that is I'm approaching that. What's going to happen when I'm dying? And and I'm grasping. No, no, don't let me go now. Don't. I love life. I want to appear one more time and, and interest you and amuse you and amaze you one more time. No, it's time to go. I don't want to leave. You have to go. What a strange. And, and you, hear the, you hear us all listening right now because we all know that that element of truth in life is there. It's there in front of us all the time. How much life is worth? When do you declare death for yourself and for other people? That's my week. Okay? <laughs> Thank you, sir. Next question. Wow, that was funny, wasn't it? I mean, it just uh, <laughs> it lightened the mood everywhere. I think we were all... Uh, 
First of all, on, on the other you. hand, I'm sorry I said that no. because we all shared something there, and I wanted to lighten the mood, but I didn't need to because we all shared a truth, and I thank you for sharing it with me, and I'm sorry I made light of it. Thank you for sharing yourself with us today, and I would like to ask you about the life right, of Captain. Right close to the mic. I would like to ask you about the life of Captain Kirk after Generations in your novel, The Return. Uh, about the novels I wrote about Yes, The Captain Return. Kirk. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing I did. Uh, somehow, because the the uh, <laughs> I was light, and I and I. I would have jumped and rolled. It would have been all right. The, um, that's right. But there was no hood on a car that I could have grabbed a hold of. Um, what were you saying? The Return. I was asking about your novels, The Return. Okay. So, somehow, the jealously guarded... Uh, Aegis, the, 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 uh, no, I don't want nexus, I want another word. Um, the, the, the essence of, of, of Star Trek is jealously guarded. The franchise of, of uh, Star Trek is jealously guarded by Paramount and the people who ever, at this point I think it's J.J. Abrams, uh, I, I, who are responsible, holding on to not letting Star Trek get out of hand, everybody takes a, a shot at Star Trek, but somehow uh, they let me go. And I said I had some novels. In fact, on the death of Captain Kirk, I played the death of Captain Kirk, and, um, and Rick Berman, uh, who's the producer, was the producer uh, of that movie, uh, and I died. And everybody applauded, death of the captain. I walked up to Rick Berman, I said, I have an idea how to bring him back. <laughs> And I wrote, uh, I wrote a treatment, and they turned it down. But they allowed me to write the novel called The Return. So I, I wrote the novel, and, and it was well-received and successful. So they allowed me to write another novel. So then I began to write stories about Captain Kirk that involved me. That... <laughs> that involved me, Shatner. The journey that Shatner is going through, and some of which I'm talking to you about right now, how Shatner felt about death in my life, uh, how Shatner felt about the aging process and the desperate grasp onto youth and not wanting to let one moment go by without living it to its fullest. I began a series of novels that are autobiographical. I didn't realize it fully until some time later. But when I came up with ideas of what stories to tell about Captain Kirk, they were the stories of, of me and my marriage and the death in my marriage and, and the love and the, and the, and, and the enmity and the, and, and, and the and, and stories of of things that happened to either people I knew or people that happened to me or people I love, it became autobiographical. Stories of, of what love is and what love can do. So they let me go. 
And I did, I forgot now how many novels, of Star Trek and Captain Kirk and my idea of what would have happened had they let the Kirk character live, this would have been my idea of where the stories went. Okay? And, and so if you read any of those novels, they're actually things that have either happened to me or I thought of. That way. Next question. Um, uh, uh, my father... That's all right. I take, take uh, is an airline pilot, and he's a big fan of yours. I was your, wondering. Your, your father is an airline pilot. Yes. Yes, I was wondering if you could say uh, Captain Jerry on the bridge. <laughs> is your father here? Uh, no, he was unable to attend because of a wedding. <laughs> your, your father's getting married. No, no, my cousin. Your cousin's getting married. Yes. How will he know that I said Captain Jerry on the bridge? I'm recording it currently. You're recording it? Yes. Do you know that it's against the law to record this thing? Uh -oh. oh, I did not know that. You did not know that. Because you're someone special. <laughs> Thank you. And because I have absolute jurisdiction over here, <laughs> I want you to record this. Okay. Is it on? Yes. I would have suspected it was. <laughs> Captain Jerry. <laughs> Captain Jerry's on the bridge, everybody. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the wedding. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very, very much. It's been such a pleasure to be in front of you. Yeah. Take right. care of yourselves. Right.